Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. These days, I feel like I can't make sense of the news until I've talked it out with my friends. So I made a new show where we do that every week. It's called It's Been a Minute. That's my way of saying let's catch up. Find It's Been a Minute now on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcast. Thanks. Hi there. This is Abigail Hines from Leander, Texas. My dad is always making me listen to this podcast in the car. This podcast was recorded at... 2.39 p.m. on Thursday, the 29th of June. Things may have changed by the time you are hearing it. Keep up with all of NPR's political coverage at npr.org, on the NPR One app, and on your local public radio station. Okay, let's hear about some politics. Oh my God, Abigail, I love you. You know that our listenership has to be bigger than what it actually comes through as because Nielsen can't pick up, you know, forced children listening. Yeah, I mean, there are some serious forced children listening. (laughs) It's the NPR Politics Podcast, here to talk about a week of ups and downs for the Senate health care bill, new criteria for the Trump administration's travel ban, and yes, the president's vulgar tweets. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. Welcome, guys. Hey there. Let's start where we have for the last several episodes, which is health care. This week, unable to gather enough support for the Better Care Reconciliation Act, or BICRA? BICRA. Republican leadership in the Senate delayed a vote on the bill. That was after the Congressional Budget Office came out with an estimate that said 22 million fewer people would have health insurance come 2026 under this bill as compared to current law. And, of course, after a lot of talk about the bill's dramatic cuts to Medicaid. Um, so, Sue, we have been covering zombie health care bills before. We have seen health care bills snatched from the jaws of defeat and to go on to victory. Where is this one? That is a great question, Tam. And I think I would refer back to our timestamp, noting that when you're hearing this podcast, (laughs) this could change because this is moving very quickly and moving very fast in a sort of unwieldy process right now. Senators are quite literally still meeting in Mitch McConnell's office as we're talking in this podcast. And he's the Senate majority leader. He's the Senate majority leader who's trying to sort of cobble together this deal. You know, the CBO report that came out this week was not great, but they were sort of anticipating it wasn't going to be great. But it was the thing that gave a lot of senators the reason to point to to say, I can't support this bill. And so where what they're doing now is Mitch McConnell and essentially one-on-one meetings with the senators who have objections is pulling them into his office and saying, what do you need? What can I give you? What can you do, use to get there? And again, remember, there's only 52 Republicans in the Senate. This is a process that they only need to pass with the majority. So Democrats aren't playing a role. 50 because Mike Pence, the vice president, would break the tie. So how they get to 50, when they get to 50, I can't reasonably game out for you how they do that. But I can tell you that everyone is in the boat rowing in the same direction and that they are trying very hard to come up with something that can pass. And, you know, I can tell you that I was at the White House all week and they are cautiously optimistic because they say we've been through this before. This happened in the House. The bill had to be pulled. It came back, what, a couple weeks later with 
these kinds of deals embedded in it, which bought off just enough moderates and just enough conservatives, kind of the same thing that, that Mitch McConnell is trying to do now. Of course, he has less room for error. And this whole this whole process, the timeline, has been blown up by— This the, timeline has been blown up multiple times. But and Mitch that, McConnell is supposed to have magic powers. <laughs> He's supposed to be the most skilled legislator of his generation, and he always has— he can pull a rabbit out of the hat, and he always has another card up his sleeve. Is he, though? But that's what, what, what I want to ask what is Sue. He gov- I mean, what, what I want to ask Sue, is that has he done to reputation, govern? is that magic power reputation justified? I think if you ask Senate Republicans if it's justified, they will say yes. You know, McC- what McConnell is, is a closer. You know, the thing that I've, I've heard about McConnell that's kind of joked about is that part of his skill is that, which you can't underestimate in the Senate, is how much his members trust him. And I've joked with the senators before about sort of if everyone has a friend in life that if you had to call them at 2 a.m. and say, can you help me get rid of this body? You know, <laughs> who is the friend that you would call? Sort of who is that person you trust more than anyone else? And I think, Mitch McConnell, if you ask most Senate Republicans who who among your colleagues you trust more than anyone else here, they would say Mitch McConnell. And that is the source of his power. But but, Sue, Mitch McConnell's original thinking was that it wasn't a good idea to let this go over the July 4th break. He wanted it done before members went home and talked to their constituents who, as we know from the polling, uh, don't think very highly of this bill. So why do you think he miscalculated and couldn't get it done before the date that he originally thought was the drop-dead date? You know, I mean, he's not infallible. He's he's wrong sometimes. They overshoot sometimes. They've already overshot on health care, which is something that they wanted to be signed at and signed by the president back in April. So they're already so far past this deadline. I think part of why he created this deadline and was trying to push members towards there is you kind of have to create the pressure cooker to get people to act. And so you increasingly have to put the pressure on to say July 4th or August 1 or whatever the deadline is that keeps moving. But you always need a deadline to force action. The reason the thing that I think is interesting the reason why they didn't hold the vote this week tells me that they really do want to get a bill. If you were if you knew you weren't going to get the votes and you were ready to move on, then you put it on the floor, you let it fail, and you just say, Obamacare is law of the land, we need a bipartisan solution, let's move on to tax reform. And the fact that they're not doing that, I think, actually has increased, has had a de facto reaction of creating an even greater pressure cooker over here, where they're really turning the screws, not just on McConnell, but on members to say – you know, this is what you came here for. You need to vote on this. Tell us what you need. Can we talk about policy a little sure. bit? Like, what are the changes that could be made to this bill? Um, to get that, them there? To get them there. Well, here's the things that we're hearing in the latest rounds. Um, one, Tam, is you've reported on this this week, but any number of senators want more money to combat the opioid addiction or the opioid epidemic. That's a pretty solvable problem. They have a tentative agreement. The most fascinating debate that's going on right now is that we've had uh, a group of senators, Bob Corker of Tennessee is one, Mike Rounds, former Governor Mike Rounds, who's now a senator, is another, who don't want to repeal all of the taxes in Obamacare. Which seemed like sort of the point of this legislation, at least for a while. If you are now having a conversation where Republican senators are saying 
they don't want to repeal taxes. And I got to tell you, that's not a conversation you hear a lot. That's but surprising. But, but the reason, let's talk about Medicaid, because that's kind of the big gorilla in the room here. And everybody seems to focus on the exchanges and the individual marketplace. But the biggest expansion of insured people under Obamacare came from people who got Medicaid who weren't able to get it before. And one of the reasons they're now looking at clawing back some of those tax cuts for wealthy people is because the politics of saying we are going to cut Medicaid for the poorest people, low-income, working-class people, while we are giving a big tax cut to super-rich people was just becoming untenable. And that's why that's why somebody like Corker is saying we have to claw back some of these tax hikes for the rich, because we can't sell those at the same time we are curtailing Medicaid. But Warren Buffett would get a tax cut. Yeah, but Warren Buffett would get a tax cut. And that is, that is completely right. I mean, the poli- and the fact that senators like Corker are so candid about that, that the politics of that are terrible, that they don't want to go home and say they knocked some people off of Medicaid so wealthy people could get a tax cut. I mean, that and senators have a more macro view of this than a lot of House members do. Right. They they more, they have bigger constituencies. They, they have represent whole states. And, you know, you senators like Corker saying we've got to protect these revenue so we can pay for things like Medicaid. But you keep that in there. And senators like Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania are saying, I didn't come here to keep taxes in place. If we don't repeal the taxes, I might not vote for it. And other senators saying, I came here to curtail entitlements. Entitlement reform has been the holy grail for Republicans for a generation. And Mitch McConnell, we have talked about this before, as when he was selling the previous version of the of the House plan, said the reason Republicans should vote for this is because it has tax cuts, deficit reduction, and entitlement reform. He never mentioned the word health care. There is a fundamental conflict, though, between that conservatism of wanting to cut entitlements and Trump's populism. Absolutely. You know, Trump said that he was going to make, quote, no cuts to Medicaid or Medicare or Social Security. And this bill is off by 26 percent, more than a quarter of what the spending would be projected to be. Something like $800 billion cut for Medicaid. You know, it's a lot. And the president's trying to bill it as not a change, that it's actually increasing. The spending is increasing, but not what it would be uh, on the current trajectory. And when you look at just the the kind of class warfare that goes on with this, you know, you saw Kellyanne Conway on a Sunday show talking about she's a White House counselor, that able-bodied people should be able to get health insurance through their employer. That was kind of one of the whole points of Obamacare was that people who do work full time but can't afford health care or their employer doesn't provide it, that they could then get it. And the people who have who get Medicaid, many of them are employed. But as you said, they don't get insurance through their employer because they're working in a parking lot or a fast food restaurant or or they have or or they have three part time jobs. Yeah. Can we just go back to one thing that we talked about, but we just sort of brushed over, which is this idea that either it's a cut to Medicaid or it's a cut to the growth in Medicaid. Sue, do you want to just try to explain that? Sure. So when they talk about Medicaid cuts, and this is cuts is a very politicized term, is that Republicans are some Republicans are saying that it's not a cut. It's that basically we're just telling the federal government that they're not going to spend as much over time as was originally planned. So you sort of slow the growth of spending, but you don't ultimately cut spending. It's always going to go up. Entitlements, you know, the trajectory of entitlement spending keeps going up and up and up. They're saying if you just make it go up a little slower, 
then you'll save money. Though you aren't slowing the rate of growth of health care costs. You're right. just slowing the rate of growth of what, you what spend the federal government spends yeah. on it. But what this bill does is it gets rid of the Medicaid guarantee. And that guarantee is states have a partnership with the federal government where they say these are the services we absolutely cover and the state covers X amount and the federal government always fills in that gap so states aren't left with budget gaps. This stops the guarantee. It changes the way you fund Medicaid so states would get a more um, hard sum of money. And then that puts the burden onto the states if they have Medicaid needs that they don't – if the, that the federal government isn't guaranteeing to cover – that puts that balance that puts that burden onto the state and why that really can crunch states in budget situations is a lot of states have statutory balanced budget laws that they by law have to balance the budget so if you come up with a 200 million dollar shortfall that you have to spend on medicaid that money's got to come from somewhere and that's why i think you see governors like nevada's brian sandoval and john Kasich of ohio and other senate and governors who have been really wary of this because they see the real life impact would be you might have to knock people off of medicaid and, and people on medicaid are the people who need the government's help the most 25 percent of the residents of ohio are on medicaid medicaid is really big can i, I want to go and in back. ohio in ohio no. seven hundred thousand people are part of the medicaid expansion right. which is phasing out and the reason i know that statistic is because um, Senator Rob Portman, the Republican senator from Ohio, has talked about that statistic. Right. And that's why the question I have for, for Sue is Mitch McConnell has these little side deals, some more money for opioid abuse, maybe some flexibility for the conservatives, you know, for what Ted Cruz wants. But what a lot of these senators are concerned about are these massive Medicaid cuts to the future amount. Maybe not right now. Uh, so I wonder how he's going to solve that problem. Yeah. And two senators that are exactly that are Susan Collins of Maine and Dean Heller of Nevada, who have come out. And when we go to this debate over whether it's a cut or not, the thing I always say is, you know, Dean Heller and Susan Collins call it a cut. And that's what matters. Yep. You want to debate if yep. it's a cut or not a cut. Susan Collins says it's a cut to Medicaid. Dean Heller says it's a cut to Medicaid. And their voices matter more in this debate. You know, something that, that, that Domenico said, which I think is really important, he was talking about this clash inside the Republican Party between, you know, traditional conservatives who want to cut taxes and cut entitlements, and then Trump, who promised many times he would never cut entitlements. He was he boasted that he was the only Republican who was going to protect them. And he promised a pretty populist, Trumpian vision of health care, lower deductibles, better, better coverage, and no entitlement cuts. What's so interesting to me about what's happened to health care is that Trumpism has totally disappeared. There is no more Trumpian agenda for health care. He has totally subcontracted out health care policy to the Hill. He doesn't seem to be either interested in injecting those ideas, those promises into this. He did say that the health care bill in the House was too mean. He talked about something being more generous, spend more money. But he hasn't really tried to shape it in his populist image. Well, he the... can't if he wants Republicans to vote for it. Well, he hasn't even tried. I was going to I mean, say, though, but that is the fundamental thing that Tam is talking about. The fact is you can have a Republican president, you know, who's more populist. If you've got people in Congress who are more traditional conservatives, if you go at them with the stuff that Donald Trump wants and his populism that he campaigned on, it's going to face a lot of pushback unless he's willing to find some kind of middle ground and work with Democrats. OK, one last question on this topic. Mitch McConnell this week said, quote, 
Either Republicans will agree and change the status quo or will have to sit down with Chuck Schumer. <gasps> horror of horrors. <laughs> okay, so... I mean, this is like a down the road situation. But if Republicans can't pass this thing, then Obamacare, although it is not in a death spiral, is not exactly working for everybody. On the exchanges. Right. I mean, there are senators who have vooist some uh, preference towards the Chuck Schumer solution, right? That Lindsey Graham has Lindsey been Graham, pushing that for months. Yeah. Ron Johnson of Wisconsin, again, Susan Collins Susan of Maine. Collins, I mean, John McCain. the reason why that is, you know, policy-wise, you could probably get there. This isn't really a policy problem. This is a political problem. And the political problem is in order to get enough of that coalition of the willing to the table, you probably need enough Republicans to say the words, Obamacare is the law of the land. Which is a really hard statement for Republicans Just to like say. Just like Paul Ryan said briefly after they believed after it they would fail. And you need Democrats to say, and there's a lot of problems with it. And you need both <laughs> sides to sort of concede that they're they both have a critical failing in their logic, and they want to solve the problem. But the reason why why you know Sue says they're going to get this done, and this is what I hear at the White I House too. I don't that, but, but well, I'm... It, it, the, the, the chance it's, it seems don't more declare there's a thumb on the scale. Yes, there's a thumb on the scale because the political price to pay for failure is so great. The base of the Republican Party will be demoralized, furious. This was their number one promise for the last seven years. They wanted to repeal Obamacare. A lot of them just wanted to repeal Obama, but uh, they promised to repeal Obamacare. I've talked to a lot of Republicans this week, and that's the thing I've been asking them is what are the consequences of failure? And to the member, they say that failure is not an option, that yep. if they fail on this, it could fundamentally weaken their ability to get anything done, that it would infuriate the base, that it would weaken them even further going into the midterms. Yep. And that's why I lean towards they get something done and they may not think it's wonderful policy, but the political pressure on them to deliver is immense. And, you know, while we're talking about healthcare, we had this new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll that was out and it showed that only 17 percent of the country uh, approved of the Senate health care bill. You know, and that's in line with a lot of other polling that we've seen. People don't approve of how Republicans have handled this. But when you look at, you know, the ratings on who they blame, yes, Republicans get more of the blame, but not by a huge margin. And when you look at the approval ratings for Democrats and Republicans, they're basically the same. So while Donald Trump is under 40 in this poll, he's at 37 percent approval and there's tons of bad information for him. It's a warning sign that Democrats can't just necessarily hang uh, 2018 on the fact that Donald Trump is unpopular. He hasn't dropped that far since Election Day. Yeah, right. Exactly. He ran. He's in a remarkably campaign. stable, unpopular, but stable. He ran in a campaign where his his uh, approval rating was record low. He's governing as someone whose approval rating is record low for a first year. So can he win re-election as somebody? Oh, who, God, no. Let, who, uh, let's just, you know, has a record low approval rating. In their presidency, we'll see. Are we talking but, about 2020? Well, really? you could. But the thing is, there is a warning sign for the president, too, when it comes to independence. Independents seem to be moving away from him, and they've dipped a significant amount since February. They were willing to give him a chance, it seems, and now they've gone by the wayside. All right, we've got to take a quick break. But when we come back, we will talk about the travel ban and, yes, the president's tweets. Okay, we're back. Make sure you listen to the last episode, the one from Monday, for more on Supreme Court action this week, also more on health policy. 
The Supreme Court earlier this week allowed the Trump administration to implement parts of its revised travel ban that's been locked up in the courts for the last few months. So um, the new miniature portion of the travel ban is being put into effect today, tonight. Domenico, what what's happening? How's this going to work? Well, the difference here, you noted that this travel ban has been tied up in the courts, but the Supreme Court did rule on Monday uh, that a modified ban could go into effect. And this is from those six countries uh, that the administration has deemed to be potential terrorist threat, Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Syria, and Yemen, and that there's a potential loophole where people can come in if they have a, quote, credible claim of a bona fide relationship with a person or entity in the United States. Now, a bona fide relationship. How do you define that? That's up to the administration to have to put down. And what the administration has said is that they'll allow travelers from those six countries if they have close family ties. And those ties are defined as a parent, uh, parents-in-law, mothers-in-law, father-in-law, spouses, children, adult sons or daughters. Uh, That also includes uh, son-in-laws or daughter-in-laws, siblings, your brothers or sister, and half- and step-siblings. What it does not include, grandparents, interestingly. What? Although, I know. Why? I don't know why. I mean, this is just one of those things. No grandparents, grandchildren, aunts, uncles, nieces, nephews, cousins, brothers-in-law, sister-in-law, fiancés. So clearly this is the kind of thing that is going to be, you know, hashed over and debated for a while. And it's, it's this is not the end of the story. I mean, this is going to be a very temporary thing. No. So like the Supreme Court hasn't actually ruled on the merits of the case yet. They, they've just decided to let part of the travel ban go into place until they can actually hear the case in the fall. Um, and if I were a betting person, which I'm not, um, I would also bet that Someone is going to go to court and argue that grandparents or grandchildren or some aspect of this is arbitrary and not fair. Yeah. And look, we should also note refugees is another part of this where refugees are going to be banned for at least 120 days. They can enter if they can show a bona fide relationship, quote unquote, with one of those folks who's allowed to come. But uh, this is going to be a very strict thing that the Department of Homeland Security and TSA are going to have to monitor very closely. Yeah, and a bona fide relationship for a refugee is not a refugee agency that you've been working with to bring you into the country. It's not having a host family. Yeah. Okay, and one more thing before we go to Can't Let It Go is something that the president clearly cannot let go. Um, Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough Do we have to talk about this? Yes. I think we do. Especially because think of everybody that's weighed in on it. I know. We have to. Um, So Mika Brzezinski and Joe Scarborough from MSNBC's Morning Joe, they have sort of a complicated relationship with the president. They attended a New Year's Eve party that the president threw at Mar-a-Lago this year. But apparently things have gone south from there. This morning, the president turned to Twitter um, to make a statement about their relationship or how he feels about them. He said, quote, Wait, if you're always reading tweets, do you want me to read the tweets? Oh, yeah. Why don't you? I can I can stay below my 10 percent threshold. We should hear I, it in a man's voice. There yes. You go. Let's hear it in I, a man's voice, Domenico. <clears throat> I'll give you some queens. I heard poorly rated at morning Joe speaks badly of me. Don't watch anymore. Then how come low IQ Crazy Mika, along with Psycho Joe, came to Mar-a-Lago three nights in a row around New Year's Eve and insisted on joining me? 
She was bleeding badly from a facelift. I said no! Exclamation point. Exclamation mark. What's the bleeding from a face? Like, what does that have to do with anything? It's just gross. But also, what is that? Are these linked? Is he saying I didn't let her stay because... I don't... I, don't, I really don't get what he's the, actually saying. What he's get, saying is he's denigrating her as he has done many times in the past to women. This is of a piece with many comments during the campaign. This is not the first woman on cable who he has criticized for bleeding from her face, in fact. Megyn Kelly, this is a thing with him. And that actually happened to be when Megyn Kelly had been asking him about denigrating things he'd said about women, ironically. So something that the show said on Morning Joe or oops, he doesn't watch anymore. Something someone told him they said, <laughs> he's asking for a friend. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, something he, that was on the show made him upset. Well, and him, yeah. so we have some clips from the show. We don't know for certain if this is what set the president off. Earlier this morning, before he tweeted, they were talking about the Washington Post story from earlier this week that said that There was a fake Time magazine cover that has been put on display at numerous Trump venues, golf clubs, various other things. That's just like not an actual real Time magazine cover, but is a fake Time magazine cover where the president is sort of there. He's not the president yet. It was in 2009. And and he has sort of his his hands folded under his arms. Nothing makes a man feel better than making a fake cover of a magazine about himself, lying every day and destroying the country. Okay. It's a good feel. Enough about me. Where are your hands in that photo? Well, he's covering his hands here because they're teensy. The other crazy thing about that, not to belabor that story. I was talking about Trump. Donald Trump actually was on the cover of Time Magazine 14 times. Right. Oh, but but that wasn't enough. One of those up there. I don't know. That wasn't enough, was it? Exclamation Always point. Always needs yes. more. Yeah, and then um, shortly after the president tweeted, Mika Brzezinski shot back with a photograph showing a Cheerios box, and the text on that box said, made for little hands. Oy. So this is altogether unpleasant. And it's the kind of snark that goes on Almost every day, if not every day on that show. But, you know, Donald Trump's president of the United States and he decides that he has to weigh in on something that seems to be getting under his skin when he doesn't need to. And he's decided in the bigger picture here, you know, he has been looking around at various media outlets. CNN had to retract a story. Three people uh, were resigned. Fi- resigned from CNN because of that story. And He has decided to go after CNN, uh, The Washington Post and others and now MSNBC and Morning Joe and trying to build this narrative and push this narrative that the media is fake. They get things wrong, that they're petty, and he's going to see if he can overcome all of it and get his supporters fired up against him. And even and even more, they're after him. And he is, as his spokesman said today, the president has been attacked mercilessly. He's going to fight back. People wanted a tough, smart fighter. Not going to let the liberal media and the Hollywood elites, you know, push him around or bully him. And this is the way the president has bonded with his supporters throughout the campaign and since by sharing a common bond of humiliation and grievance against elites. But the other thing that's so interesting to me about how people responded is you had all three women senators, Republican senators, whose votes are needed for health care, Susan Collins, Shelley Moore Capito, and Lisa Murkowski tweeting condemnation of his tweets. Uh, you even had Sean Hannity, his number one biggest booster in the media, saying it was in his best interest not to do it, in my humble opinion. I was really surprised by how 
much people, particularly on the Hill and elsewhere, came out against the president on this tweet because and maybe my I'm I'm becoming too callous towards these things. But the president has tweeted many offensive things towards women or other people or and said them. why I, would, I don't know why this particular tweet struck such a nerve with people today. It, it is deeply personal, though, to yeah. talk about like. I don't know whether she had had surgery or not or but but to like talk about someone having surgery and saying basically that she was gross like that's that's airing something that shouldn't be aired and coming from the president it's just it seems to you know throw everybody's morning off but you can see I, that can I offer a theory or maybe why this happened this kind of reaction happened today. We always forget what happened just a couple of weeks ago, which was that a Republican baseball practice for a, for a for a baseball game was attacked by a shooter and people were grievously wounded. And today, Senator James Langford, who you don't think of as a Trump critic, tweeted, I just chaired a meeting with the U.S. Capitol Police about safety and the June 14th shooting. He says national and local leaders, including our president, should model civility, honor and respect in our political rhetoric. The president's tweets today don't help our political or national discourse, do not provide a positive role model for our national dialogue. Now, this is was a moment, that shooting, where a lot of people said, maybe this can be a tipping point. We can dial the political rhetoric down. We can have the outrage machine kind of turned off for a moment. And maybe... That's why. You know, I don't think it's something – I don't know about you guys, but it's not something I tell my kids to say, when they go low, we go lower. <laughs> it's just not a but thing. But that's the president's like, motto. If you really, come after me, I'm going to come after you worse. Yeah, turn the other cheek is not in his yeah, vocabulary. No. Orrin Hatch, who's the Republican senator from Utah, who's the president pro tem of the Senate, also wrote an op-ed for Time magazine this week. I think it was published yesterday, but along the same lines as Senator Lankford's comment that he – called for renewed commitment to civility and personally recommitted himself to not engaging in any kind of personal attacks or negative attacks and trying to elevate this debate. So there's two very different conversations happening on Capitol Hill and in the White House when it comes to but, civility. And, you know, the other the other theory of the case, why now, why a reaction now since he's said and done so many things like this in the past, maybe it's because the reservoir of goodwill that he has among Republicans on Capitol Hill is getting really low. There's a lot of exasperation with him and frustration, his comments about the health care bill, Republicans not sure if he has their back, if he's going to throw them under the bus. Um, when you hear Ben Sass and Lindsey Graham criticize the president, that's normal. But when you hear all these other people, that's something different. The also just side point about I would make about Mika and Morning Joe is uh, just a cultural point from the Hill. Lawmakers love Morning Joe. It is like the unofficial show of Capitol Hill. It's what it they is, watch in the gym, right? It's what they watch in the gym because it's the show that Republicans and Democrats can agree to watch because they both like it. They both go on it. I think they all want to go on it. So part of why I wonder if there was such a reaction to this is because they know the show, they watch the show, and they like the hosts. Okay, well— um no doubt the president will tweet again, and no doubt people will be outraged again, and no doubt the cycle will repeat itself. But it is now time for something that we can't let go of ourselves, can't let it go, the part of our show where we talk about one thing we cannot stop thinking about this week, politics or otherwise. And they don't have to do with his tweets. None of them. Mara, what can you not let go of? What I can't let go of this week was a story that didn't get a whole lot of coverage, but it's about how the Keystone Pipeline, which 
the president approved with great fanfare and said it would create thousands and thousands of jobs in America, it turns out the Keystone Pipeline is having trouble getting customers. No way. Yes. It's um, having trouble getting oil and gas companies to sign up for the oil that would go through the pipeline. That reminds me of what happened to the Ford Motor Company jobs that the president also announced with great fanfare that ended up being moved to China. What is the reason the companies are saying that they don't want to partake in the pipeline? Do they not need it? Is they it... don't need it. Huh. Oil is trading at $45. It's a global supply glut. They just don't need it. Huh. That doesn't mean that in the end that TransCanada won't recoup its investment, but right now they're having trouble getting customers. Has the White House said anything about it? No. No. <laughs> the other thing about the pipeline is that the president, when he had signed his executive order saying, like, we are going to make these these pipelines are going to move forward, it's going to happen. And I'm signing something extra to make sure that they're made with American steel. But it turns out that it was too late to make either of the two pipelines that were in the works with American steel. So the next ones, the next ones. This is the problem with being a journalist in an era where the news comes like water out of a fire hose, because it's hard to go back and follow up on all the claims and predictions and projections that the White House has made to see if they really panned out. Yeah. Sue, what can't you let go of? So I can't let go this week. Uh, my can't let it go this week is comes courtesy of a former congressman. David Jolly was a one-term House member from Florida. He won a special election in 2014, and he did not win a re-election in 2016. He lost to former Governor Charlie Crist. And he's a bit of a cable fixture, so some people might recognize him. But he was on MSNBC this week talking about healthcare, and it was his healthcare comments that really stuck out to me. Let's just hear the tape. Lawrence, I'm going to share something with you and the American people tonight that most people probably don't know. On January 4th, I was a former member of Congress, unemployed with no health insurance and a pre-existing condition. And while I ultimately chose a private sector plan, I also knew in 2017 Obamacare provided an exchange that was a safety net that wasn't there before. And to be honest with you, if I had had to rely on it, I knew it was there. And that's why the politics of Obamacare in 2017 are different than 2013. Huh. So what you're hearing is a member of Congress who voted any number of times to repeal and replace Obamacare, who won an election in part on a campaign promise to be someone who would support the repeal and replacement of Obamacare, found himself unemployed <laughs> after losing a congressional election with a pre-existing condition and thought, eh, maybe Obamacare, not so bad. And part of the reason why I can't let it go is I just think it is such a tight, good little lesson about politics versus reality, that the things that you can campaign on and then the way that life really is. Yeah, like what's that internet thing? Life comes at you fast. And just the fact that he was so frank about it, you know, that rarely do politicians sort of just kind of admit they were wrong. And mm -hmm. hearing someone who pretty much towed the line on healthcare policy for his time in office to be out of office not too long and realize that, hey, maybe this policy that I wanted to upend might actually be helping people. Guess he isn't planning to run for office again. What do you got, Tam? Oh, so here's what I got. This past weekend on NPR's Weekend Edition Sunday, the host Lulu Garcia-Navarro was doing an interview with tennis legend John McEnroe, who I mostly know as the guy who throws tennis rackets. She was asking him about something he had written in his new book where he said that Serena Williams is the best female player, tennis player in the world. What qualified? Oh, oh, she's not, you mean the best player in the world, period? Yeah, best tennis player in the world. You know, why, why say female player? 
Well, because if she was a if she played the men's circuit, she'd be like seven hundred in the world. You think so? Yeah, that doesn't mean I don't think Serena's like an incredible player. I do, but there's you know, the reality of uh, what what would happen on a given day, a Serena could beat some some players. I believe because she's so incredibly strong mentally. But if she had to just just play the circuit, the men's circuit, that would be an entirely different story. So um, that got a lot of attention. It did get a lot of attention, and eventually Serena Williams tweeted in response. Now, Serena Williams' context here is due to have a baby soon. Um, So here she goes. She says, Dear John, I adore and respect you, but please keep me out of your statements that are not factually based. I've never played anyone ranked there, nor do I have time. Respect me in my privacy as I'm trying to have a baby. Good day, sir. Good day. <laughs> I said good day. Though I was reading a Vox article about this whole kerfuffle, and they quoted Serena Williams herself from a 2013 interview that she did uh, on uh, David Letterman's show. And she says, quote, If I were to play Andy Murray, I would lose 6-0-6-0 in five to six minutes, maybe ten minutes. The men are a lot faster. They serve harder. They hit harder. It's a completely different game. Yes, but then from now on, people should talk about the best male player in the world when they're referring to men. That would solve this problem. The fact is, this has been a debate that's raged for a long, long time. There was that big match. Remember, Billie Jean King wound up playing against a male player whose name no one can remember because Billie Jean King was far more famous than he was. And she beat him in this head-to-head match. Billie Jean King actually wound up weighing in on this and did note that she thinks that the top woman could not beat the top man, you know, and that no one would argue otherwise. And, and you know, Andy Murray is the top-ranked tennis player now currently. and that's Top-ranked male tennis player. Top-ranked top male tennis player in the world. And <laughs> if we just it's stick a different to that, game. we can solve this problem. Yeah. Domenico, why can't you let go of? Well, everything gets a label nowadays. So what I can't let go of is the word exennials. Or is it Xennials? I think it's Xennials. I think Xennials might be some sort of like perennial flower. Yeah. Oh. Oh, yeah. Like, well, Xenia. Okay. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's Xennials because it's a combination of two generations, a micro generation between Generation X, Gen X, and Millennials. And this is for anybody born between 1977 and 1983, which <clears throat> happens to be some of us in this room, like, particularly me. And me. And are me. you? Oh, oh, see, we've got three of us Xennials in here. We currently. are a dominant generation. So <laughs> it's a micro generation. This was coined by an Australian professor by the name of Dan Woodman. And his point here is, especially on technology, we're a lot different than the generation that came before us and the generation that came after. Uh, this uh, Daily Mail piece sums it up this way. Xennials grew up in a time where landline phones were used to organize catch-ups with friends, and people read the newspaper and watched the nightly news to keep up to date with current affairs. That's true. Like, I remember not that long ago picking up an actual newspaper and reading it. I remember having a rotary phone growing up. Oh, and, yeah. You know, I'm kind of surprised you don't still have a rotary phone. <laughs> Come that on. That seems like something you would hold on to, Domenico. <laughs> I like the dial tone. Oh, my goodness. Well, anyway, so our phones do have a dial tone. But anyway, I, you know, you'd have to get the long extension cord to be able to talk so that your parents couldn't hear you. I mean, you know, the, all of these things existed for us 
that, you know, the younger generation or the people in our generation, technically, if we're not born before 1978, we're millennials. We're not millennials. We are technically, technically. Um, And that's why the exennial thing seems so interesting. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because it's just there's a different kind of way about us now. I will say Bustle.com had a story written by a somewhat younger millennial, had this to say about it. Older millennials are so salty about being millennials, they made up a new name for themselves. <laughs> my two like things that I always say is my dividing line for millennials or what exennials or whatever it is, is if you had email in high school, mm. you're definitely a millennial. Yeah. And if you do not have any conscious memory of Ronald Reagan as president, you are definitely a millennial. Oh, yeah. Well, then I am definitely not a millennial. Yeah, because I mean, I remember I remember Ronald Reagan being president. And if you don't have any memory of that, there is like no question that you're a millennial. Yeah. My biggest dividing line difference between me and the younger generation definitely is around technology. When I was a freshman in college, I still had to handwrite in long form on paper my term papers. I was still doing that and then typing them up uh, because it just wasn't a part of like muscle memory. It wasn't until like my sophomore year in college that I really started to take notes on computers and and huh. uh, and and write that way. It just wasn't as integrated in everyday life. All right, old man. I know. <laughs> Speak for yourself. I feel like our listeners are going to be like, God, I didn't realize. This is my dad's podcast. (laughs) Dadcast. Okay, that is a wrap for today. We will be back next week, but not until after the 4th of July. We're taking time off. So the next episode, probably, hopefully, next Thursday. Make sure to keep up with NPR Politics on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And... Make sure that you're listening to Up First, which will have new episodes on Monday and Tuesday, even if we don't. And if you're enjoying the show, do us a little favor and leave a review on iTunes. That helps new listeners find us. Of course, you can support our work by supporting your local public radio station at the link in our episode information. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor. And I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And thanks for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 